This is Matt Raymond at the Library of Congress. Since 2001, hundreds of thousands of book lovers of all ages have gathered in Washington, D.C. to celebrate reading at the Library of Congress National Book Festival. This year, the library commemorates a decade of words and wonder at the 10th Annual National Book Festival. President and Mrs. Obama are honorary chairs of this event, which provides D.C. locals and visitors from across the country and around the world the opportunity to see and meet their favorite authors, illustrators, and poets. The festival, which is free and open to the public, will be held on September 25th, 2010, from 10 to 5.30 on the National Mall in Washington, D.C., rain or shine. You know, there are certain titles that are appended to people's names that have a way of making you sit up and take notice, and Pulitzer Prize winner is one of those. And I'm pleased to be joined today by one of those select few. Ray Armentrout is the recipient of the 2010 Pulitzer Prize for Poetry for her book Versed, as well as the 2010 National Book Critics Award. Ms. Armentrout will be featured in the Poetry and Prose Pavilion at this year's National Book Festival where she will be talking about her new book, uh, which is, uh, of course, her most recently published book of poetry. And, and thank you so much for joining me today, Ray Armentrout. Oh, thank you, Matt. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, first of all, congratulations on, on winning the 2010 Pulitzer Prize. Um, what, what does that honor mean to you? Well, first of all, it was a complete shock. Um, I had not been expecting it. I hadn't been following it on Twitter or anything like that. It was... Uh, completely a bolt from the blue, and uh, someone from my uh, university called me and said, the press are going to want to talk to you, and I said, about what? And she said, you don't know, do you? <laughs> I said, no, what? I was getting increasingly paranoid, like, is my office on fire? And so that's how I found out. Um, I was not the first to know. Um, and, well, it's obviously a huge honor. It's amazing to me how much attention this one prize seems to get. I mean, uh, for a while, my world just kind of turned upside down. There were so many, so many people wanting to get in contact with me for all sorts of different reasons. For mm -hmm. instance, people were sending me blank index cards and asking me to sign them <laughs> if they wanted my signature. <laughs> Hopefully they aren't going to forge any checks or anything. <laughs> Maybe. Or I've uh, I've been asked to address chambers of commerce as if I have anything to say about business. You know, <laughs> so it's been wild. Well, it's been a few months. Has the novelty worn off? Yeah, I mean, you know, in in the end, in the end, you realize that you know you you are the same person you always were, and you're. Poems are no better or worse than they ever were, and this, you know, a, a prize is uh, a great, but a prize is just a prize, so you, you have to kind of come down at some point. Uh, I came across this phrase, little thought bombs. That's what the, the Pulitzer Selection Committee described your poems as, the thought bomb that sort of goes off later, I guess. What, what does that mean to you? <laughs> well, I like that that statement, whoever came up with it. Um, I take it as a compliment. I mean, I, I think I, it's an experience that I go through, that is, hearing something or seeing something and taking it in quickly and then later thinking, what was that? What did that mean? You know, doing that double take. And I guess I, I do hope to set that up for my readers to um, have something, to write something that 
appears to mean one thing at first, and then suddenly you realize you can see it another way, that there might be um, a second level of reality hidden behind the first, if you will, you know, behind the curtain. So I think they were picking up on that, maybe. Hmm. Now, your your new book, Versed, well, which, of course, is the prize winner, is uh, broken into two parts. The first is titled Versed, and the second, Dark Matter. Why did you segment your work that way, and, and what is the significance of that? Well, I was writing a book that I thought would be called Versed, and um, to some extent I was coming out of a personal dark period. I was kind of recovering from my mother's death, and the poems in the verse section, some of them are a bit playful, I guess, you know, um, enjoying language and and the world. I mean, it wasn't all light in the first section, because after all, I get my material from whatever's around me, and you know, including the news, and the news had been rather grim in those years. I mean, it was kind of the the worst of the fighting in Iraq and the the news about Abu Ghraib, and, you know, so so if you take in what's around you, then your work, my work, couldn't possibly have been all light, but there was a kind of sense of vitality to that first half, I think, and then in, in the midst of writing verse, or what I thought was the midst of writing verse, I found out that I had cancer, and not only that, that I had a very rare cancer that's usually fatal. And that was four and a half years ago, and uh, I, I am still in remission, so, you know, apparently I was an exception to the rule. But I was told that, you know, this did not have a good prognosis. And so that's when I started writing Dark Matter. Actually, the last poems in verse are kind of when I'm... When I'm when I'm just told about that and and go to the hospital and you know so the crisis moment kind of comes at the end of the verse section and then after I've been at home from the hospital a couple of months I just feel like I'm in a new world you know when you're when you're given news like that everything seems strange nothing is the same as it was time certainly isn't the same as it was because. You know, on the one hand, you see that it's very finite, possibly, time. And then on the other hand, it seems to become really dense. I mean, everything is meaningful in a different way. And uh, you, you sort of feel like a stranger, I guess, because no one else is having your experience, so no one else is quite in your world. So the, the poems in Dark Matter are um, dealing with that state of mind. I- and it's wonderful to hear that about your health. Is it difficult to write about something that's, that's that personal or, or, or an inspiration that comes from such a personal place, or is it really more therapeutic? Well, all, all of the above. I mean, I guess I didn't think of it, oddly, as being a, a particularly personal place when I was writing about it. I know it may, I said that it made me feel like a stranger, and it did in a way I felt cut off. But on the other hand, you know, one knows that everyone is going to go through something like that. Everyone will die, and, and many of us will know that we're dying before we die. And so um, I didn't really think of it as being unique to me. Um, I thought of it as being, I guess, part of the human condition. And uh, not every poem in, that's in the second half is 
specifically about death. I think it just kind of reflects, they, the poems, sort of reflect the the new state of mind I was in after the news um, and the different way that I looked at things. Well, I would definitely be remiss if I had a Pulitzer Prize winning poet and didn't uh, offer her the chance to read some of her work. Would you like to share maybe a couple uh, poems with us? Yeah, um, I'll read Scumble, which is from the first section, verse. Uh, one of the poems that I said was more playful and kind of um, about the, the pleasure I take in language. So, Scumble. What if I were turned on by seemingly innocent words such as scumble, pinky, or extrapolate? What if I maneuvered conversation in the hope that others would pronounce these words? Perhaps the excitement would come from the way the other person touched them lightly and carelessly with his tongue. What if of were such a hot button? Scumble of bushes. What if there were a hidden pleasure in calling one thing by another's name? So that was Scumble. And then um, I'll read a poem called On Your Way. This is a prose poem. And it was the first poem that I wrote after I came home from the the surgery I had for my cancer. Is this from the second section of the book? It's kind of at the end of the first section. Okay. There's a kind of transi- transition period there. And this is um, loosely based on the Egyptian Book of the Dead, so that's where the strange imagery comes from. On your way, on your way to the sea of reeds, you will meet the soul-devouring demon. You've heard it all before, and you believe it. Why not? Why would they lie? You must wear the beetle amulet to avoid being consumed. But it's also true that you can't really know until it's actually happening. So you have a sort of knowledge which, even if later confirmed in each detail, is still not real knowledge. He will weigh your heart and, if it's too heavy, you'll be swallowed up. What is this extra element that is mingled in when you arrive at the ordained spot? And then I could just read one more that is from the second section. Sure. And it's um, dedicated to my son, Aaron Korkigian, who's a biologist. He and I were having a little argument because he thought that I was anthropomorphizing evolution when we were discussing it. It's really hard to talk about scientific concepts like evolution without using anthropomorphic language, so I just <laughs> kept doing it. But since then, this is in the second section of the book, it, I, I guess it takes a kind of um, dark view on, uh, on life, so maybe, <laughs> and on, on biology, so maybe you'll hear that in it. Simple. Complex systems can arise from simple rules. It's not that we want to survive. It's that we've been drugged and made to act as if we do, while all the while the sea breaks and rolls painlessly under. If we're not copying it, we're lonely. Is this the knowledge that demands to be passed down? Time is made from swatches of heaven and hell. If we're not killing it, we're hungry. 
It's clear that you take relish in words, as you said. You're a founding member, uh, I guess you could say, of a group, um, a movement known as language poetry. What is a language poet? <laughs> well, that is a really complex question with, <laughs> with many answers. Um, but I, I think that uh, one way we can look at it is that... Um, Language poets came of age, so to speak, poetically speaking anyway, in the, in the time of the Vietnam War, in the time of Watergate, and um, we became very much aware of uh, language as, as spin. Maybe not even as much as we see today, but enough to make us aware that uh, there were ideological purposes encoded in language. And perhaps for that reason, we wanted to sort of break language down to its smaller components or slow people up as they read it and, and make, make them look at the, uh, the words and the phrases almost individually and then see how those units of language could be recombined and reformed so that there wasn't just one way, you know, to look at things or one way to say things. And uh, I, I think that's, the, the group itself has separated a bit, but I think that's still something that I'm interested in doing. And that what I was talking about before when I was answering your questions about thought bomb has something to do with that. Um, that I want people to do a double take and think twice, you know, to think... Um, really, what does that mean when I, when I hear a particular phrase? You know, what's the purpose behind that? Who's speaking that phrase? And I think that in my poems and maybe the poems of other language poets, you can't assume that there's just one voice. You know, p poets always used to talk about finding their voice. Mm -hmm. But I think that we're surrounded by voices, you know, and we're, I'm finding the voices, plural, and kind of trying to trace them back to their origins, you know, who's, who is speaking these different roles. So there's a way in which my poems are kind of polyvocal, and I think that that's also perhaps characteristic of language poetry. Your poems are brief, but at the same time they've been described as hitting very deep, resonant, emotional notes at the same time. That almost would seem on its face to be, uh, I don't know, oxymoronic or a contradiction. So how do, you, how do you do that? How do you take something so small and pack that kind of a punch into it, I guess? Well, really I think that's characteristic of poetry. I mean, I started reading poetry um, when I was a teenager. Well, my mother read me poetry, but I started reading it on my own when I was a teenager, and I started reading Japanese poets like Basho, who, you know, obviously were writing haiku. And um, so that's a, a really intense example of compression. And then I got interested in William Carlos Williams, and as you know, some of his poems are very short, but at least for me they packed a punch. Mm -hmm. Or Emily Dickinson, who, you know, can write a poem of just a few lines that has you thinking forever. Um, and so those those people were my models. And I think of that as being really the almost the essence of poetry, that it um, 
it, it condenses and compresses meaning so that, you know, perhaps later, once, it, once you've swallowed that pill or whatever, it can expand in your mind later. Hmm. Um, you are a Southern Californian. I, I guess you spent just about your entire life there. Uh, how has, yeah. your, has your state had an effect on, on your work? It seems that the, especially the language poets tend to be a, a West Coast kind of movement. Uh, does, does geography, does place have an impact on, on your writing? Uh, well, first of all, the language poetry movement started both in the Bay Area and in New York, but nonetheless. Um, well, there, there's essentially a West Coast school, correct? There is a West Coast yeah. side of it, yeah. yeah. It's pretty strong. And um, so I have lived most of my life in San Diego, although I did live for about 10 years in Berkeley and San Francisco as well. But I, I think growing, I grew up in San Diego, and, and I think that did have an effect on my writing. Um San Diego is an odd kind of place. I mean, on the one hand, it's a tourist town with a lot of uh, theme parks and tourist attractions. And on the other hand, obviously there's a huge military presence here. The Navy is here. There's a big marine base called Camp Pendleton. So um, you can never get away from that. The, if there's a war, the troops are, or even if there isn't, the, the ships are always coming home and being greeted by loved ones. There's or in the case of Camp Pendleton, there's always a mobilization going on, or there's always um, the list of the Marines at Pendleton who were killed somewhere. So you can, you can, you know, maybe you can never get away from the image of the United States as a military superpower anywhere, but it's really brought home to you here that you live in a kind of military state. And yet, as I said, there, there's this other side that's all um, Legoland and SeaWorld and, you know, playtime. And so I think maybe that dissonance, if you will, that, that sense of, uh, of uh, there being two realities, maybe one covering the other somewhat, probably is is almost basic to my to my poetry it's a kind of um proto irony you know, sort of the you know a, a basic level of irony that i was attuned to i think from growing up in san diego mm-hmm. and then i think the landscape gets into i mean if you read enough of my poems you'll you'll hear and see the the names of a lot of the local plants and maybe birds um and it's a kind of arid landscape, which means that you can sort of, you can see a long ways. We still have wild canyons here that haven't been built over because the landscape's a little bit rugged, and I like that. So mm. there's a, a sense that the, the city is um, interacting with mm-hmm. nature. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, in addition to your own writing, you also teach poetry at the University of California, San Diego. Can someone really be taught to be a poet? Oh, everyone always asks that. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, most importantly, I think people can be taught to read poetry, and, and uh, so that's what we know we can do. And I, a lot of times... Um, People are lured in, you know, by the idea of writing poetry, and they don't turn out to be poets, but maybe they do turn out to be readers or people who like poetry. So that's what happens more often. Um, I think if if we weren't exposed to poetry, we would never be poets. I mean, to be a poet, you have to read a lot of poetry. Mm-hmm. I do believe that. And you can do that on your own, or you can 
be led to do that in uh, some sort of educational setting. And But I do think that the um, a love for words and a sensitivity for words is maybe just more active in some people than others, you know, from, from the very beginning, the way some people are attuned to music, say, you know. So um, I don't know the real answer. Uh, I, some, of, some of my students have gone on to be poets whose names we might recognize, you know, and a lot of them haven't, but some have. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know what I have to do with that, you know, but I, I do think that um, I can show them, I can sort of show them what to read. I can see where they are, and I can say, oh, well, what you need to do is you need to read so-and-so, and then you need to read so-and-so. And maybe that's helpful. How much of your own inspiration do you get from reading versus from other places? Um, well, I, I do read poetry a lot, and uh, I, I think I get rhythms. You know, I don't write in meter, not, not traditional meter, but that doesn't mean that my work isn't rhythmic. I think I'm very sensitive to what you might call cadence, and I, I pick up um, rhythms from writers that I read. And it, sometimes it's poetry, but, it, you know, it might be prose. It might be uh, Beckett, say. Um, another way that I get inspired by reading is actually to read something completely outside my field. I like to read science, I mean science for lay people, physics and biology, and pick up some of the terminology from that. I guess partly I'm just really interested in questions of, you know, origin, how did, <laughs> how did things to come to be as they are, and so that attracts me to science. But also, um, often, there's a lot of metaphor in science, especially in physics, because, I mean, the real language of physics is mathematics. And so when physicists try to tell us what they're discovering, they have to resort to metaphor, just like poets do. And sometimes I'm inspired by, and as well as puzzled by, but that can be the same thing, the metaphors that they use. So that that's another source, but but definitely language. I know I, I reach out to other people's language mm-hmm. and uh, you know sort of bounce off of it in various ways. One of the more interesting things that I read that you're involved in is a project called the Grand Piano. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, um, that is um, a series of ten books, and we have finished the tenth. So the project is essentially completed, but the last. The volume hasn't come out yet. So there are ten writers, and we wrote these ten volumes. And it started out as a kind of collective memoir of our days in San Francisco in the late 70s and early 80s when we all lived in that area. And so it was a kind of exercise in memory because, of course, you find out pretty rapidly that everyone remembers events differently. (laughs) And you kind of have to come to terms with that. But it's not all set in the 70s. I mean, that's sort of the, um, the the motif or the theme that we keep coming back to. But, you know, our, our current lives and current, current thinking gets into it, too. And um, I think it's, it's interesting just to hear, I mean, we, we get lumped together as a group, but just to see when you read this how different our voices are. Mm-hmm. How similar some of our concerns may be, and yet how how what different individuals we are, and so again, it's a kind of a play of voices, 
I don't know if you're familiar with the Virginia Woolf book called The Waves, but um, it's an experimental novel where there are... Uh, There is no narration per se. You only hear the voices of these old friends. Um, And so it'll just have one character's name, and then it'll be that character's thoughts, mainly, interior monologue, and then it goes on to the next uh, character's thoughts. And so it's it's a little bit like that. You have written ten books. Uh, Versed is the tenth, and you are currently at work on an eleventh book called Money Shot. Is there anything you can tell us about that? Yeah, uh, a few <laughs> things. It's, it's not about porn, although the term <laughs> Money Shot is porn. Um, it's, I wrote it in over the last couple of years, and of course, or maybe the last year and a half, and, of course, what's been happening, what's been in the news then, is uh, the, the, what they call the financial meltdown. I object a little bit to the word meltdown because that makes it sound like, you know, some sort of um, natural occurrence. But whereas, in fact, it was uh, a whole lot of financial chicanery um, that caused a lot of harm, and again, it's not that every poem is about that. It's not that every poem tries to analyze, you know, derivatives or something. But that that language of um, financial collapse and fear and economic hardship and trickery and deceit, you know, that language and those images were all around me. So that comes into the book and. Um, I guess I was I, the title "Money Shot" comes a, a bit from um, thinking about about money as a kind of pornography, maybe because, like I said, the, the money shot is a term, and mm. as you probably won't admit to knowing. No, no, of course not. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ray Armentrouted, thank you so much for your time. It's been uh, great to speak with you today. Oh, well, thanks for having me. And uh, we look forward to actually seeing you in person at the Poetry and Prose Pavilion. That's at the National Book Festival, September 25th, 2010, from 10 to 5.30 on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. For more information and to vote for your favorite National Book Festival author, you can visit us online at loc.gov slash bookfest. From the Library of Congress, I'm Matt Raymond. Thank you so much for listening.